The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. You pray with me. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that you gather us all together in this place. We thank you for this great news that we just read and we just heard. Thank you for that love and that grace that we don't deserve. But because you chose to love us, that you did it. That you sent your son to be born, to be with us, to be amongst us. Thank you, God, for this grace and love. I pray for uh, Pastor Scott, that you will equip him, empower him, to speak through him, Lord. And I pray that all of us will hear you and what you're telling us individually. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas. It's good to see you. Some of you are panicking because there's only two more shopping days. Some of you are like, I still have two more days. I'm not worried about it. As someone who is more of the latter, something if you just are, if you happen to be out Christmas Eve night, like after the service, and for some reason you're out late, go to 7-Eleven. It's the only place that's open and it's packed. It's completely packed with people, mostly men, buying all kinds of stuff, stocking stuffers or gifts, and they're buying sunglasses, Molly Hatchet CDs, all kinds of stuff that you can only get at 7-Eleven. It's amazing. Uh, and uh, I know that because once I was one of those guys. Uh, but another time, I just went in there to check it out. It's just a whole different subculture of, of us. We are focusing on Advent as has been mentioned. And the advent, it means the arrival of a notable person. And an interesting thing about the story that we just read in the Christmas story is that a person's birth is usually not that interesting to people outside of the family or the closest friends. You know, it's just normally that doesn't happen. When the royals have a baby over there, we pay attention for some reason, then everybody watches. But most people don't care. When I had a child, you know, I put out a press release, no reporters came. They just didn't care, you know. Some of you cared, my family cared, but, you know, try it. You have a baby, put out a press release, nobody cares. And that's not new. Throughout history, there's probably not a story about the birth of a child who wasn't born into royalty. Because even when child, children grow up to be something enormously huge in history, you don't know that when they're a baby. So nobody wrote the story down, nobody cared. And yet we have the story of Jesus Christ who was born in a barn to people who were not notable and it would be many years before the entire culture understood how important he would be, although some knew and they did write it down. Because what we have here is the birth of royalty, the King of Kings. 
And in all of antiquity, you almost never see that except when a king is born, and therefore we have the story of Jesus' birth. The details of the story are, are pretty amazing. So we have the advent, the coming of a notable person, somebody who would be both God and man, a savior that would take away the sins of the world. It's a great story. There's a lot of fantasy about Christmas. And even in the Christian world, we have fantasy. You know, so there's, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but there's Santa Claus and stuff like that. Okay, whatever. But even in the Christian world, we have stories about Christmas that aren't quite right. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that we put our wise men over here from the nativity scene because they weren't there in the nativity scene that's out there. Except we usually put them all in that nativity scene. The nativity scene is interesting to me. So often you see, you know, a little blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, and then you see... Uh, Joseph, who's standing there looking regal, when the reality is he would have been passed out in the hay. There's no way he's… And Mary, who looks great, her makeup's on and everything, she just had a child in a barn with no epidural, nothing. <laughs> she doesn't look that way. See, there's a, there's a real story that, that gets a little bit covered up by a lot of the great things that we are, get excited about at Christmas and the shopping, the gifts, and the songs that we sing, which are really great, although I'll bet that night wasn't really silent at all if you've had a newborn and a bunch of animals all around. Probably wasn't silent as much as we like the song. But the Bible doesn't talk about all that. The Bible tells a real story. I want to talk about that story this morning. We just read a good part of it. And a bit of a warning to you, I uh, was a history major. I'm the guy who you don't want to go to a museum with because I read all the plaques, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm there all day, so make other plans and leave me there. But as we study the story of Christmas in the Bible, we're not talking about fantasy, we're talking about history. And it's important that we understand that that's how this is written down, that the Scriptures are, are not just some religious fiat that came out of the sky one day. It's not just somebody decided to sit down and write a story. That Luke, the writer of this, he says in the beginning of his book, I'm writing this as history. I've interviewed people and I've taken great pains to write down what I heard. He's a reporter. He's a doctor. It's his profession. He's a scientist. And he's writing this stuff down. And he wants to tell the real history. And you see, the way you can tell as you read things through history is that stories that aren't meant to be true, but that are meant to, to teach a good moral or something, they start out with things like once upon a time or there was once. And, uh, you know, one of the greatest fairy tales ever told, it begins a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> don't tell me I haven't seen it. Now, don't tell me I haven't seen it. I'm not listening. Don't tell me about the movie if you've seen it. Some of you are like, What? And sometimes when we do children's Bible stories, you get a little children's Bible, I've got those for my kids. It kind of puts these in a context of a fairy tale. A long time ago in a land far away, there was a shepherd boy named David. Once upon a time, there was a princess who found a baby floating in a basket on the river. We need to be careful because that works for kids, but that's not what the Scriptures say. That's not how it is written. The authors of fairy tales don't expect us to believe that the stories are true, and they say stuff like that to give us a clue that this story isn't true. It's some make-believe story, but that's not how the Bible is written. The Bible is a collection of stories that are written as history, or as collections of poems about things that people believed were real, that people believed were very meaningful, and millions and millions of people still believe this, and it changes the way they live, it changes the way they see the world. They believe that God is real, that He is personal, and that He is involved and He is in charge. And this is what the Scriptures teach. 
And we look at the Christmas story in the Bible, it doesn't begin with once upon a time. It begins with what you would expect a factual report to begin with. In the book of Matthew, when it tells the Christmas story, it begins with a genealogy going back to King David, showing that Jesus is the heir to the thrones, that he actually is the king of the Jews, and that Herod isn't on that list who is sitting on that throne. In Luke, it begins with, it came to pass, or it happened, or in those days. And it's because Luke is saying this actually happened in time. And he is referencing an individu- individuals that were alive during Luke's time, during Jesus' time. He places it in a specific period of time. He begins with talking about a, a particular group of rulers. We're going to talk about mainly one of them. And the interesting thing is that this is a ruler of very little importance, actually, in the story. Begins this way in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went down, everyone went to their own town to register. Outside of the Christmas story, how many of you know anything about Caesar Augustus? One person. Okay, we got one, you know couple of people, maybe you took a classical literature class over there at uh, UCSD or something, or you get into that kind of thing. But unless you've taken a class or unless you're really into that kind of thing, you probably know nothing about Caesar Augustus. And the only time the world ever really hears about this guy is basically in this footnote of a story about a Jewish carpenter. And yet he's Caesar Augustus, right? Caesar, he's a big deal. They named a salad after him. He's huge. But in the Bible, he's just a tool in the story to place this in a particular time in history. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Augustus. He was born Gaius Octavius in 63 BC. His full name, or really what is more like a title, it looks like this. I think we made it. Imperator Caesar D.V. Filius Augustus. I took one quarter of Latin. But here's what it means. Emperor or commander Caesar, son of God, Augustus. How did he get the title, Son of God? Well, Julius Caesar, who was his uncle or his great uncle, I think, Augustus was the son of Julius Caesar's niece. Julius Caesar was the dictator of the Roman Republic. It wasn't really an empire yet. And he was a historian. Julius Caesar wrote a lot about his own conquests and different things. But on March 15th, 44 BC, Julius was assassinated. It's a great story. Somebody really ought to write a play about it. (laughs) Octavius was not there when this happened. But he knew a lot about his uncle and he came back to town. And one of the things that was very interesting to him is that he discovered, he didn't know beforehand, but Julius Caesar left everything he had to Octavius. And suddenly, at 19 years old, Octavius becomes ruler, suddenly has these great titles and this ability to lead militarily in Rome. He took his uncle's name. He became Octavius Caesar. He avenged his uncle's death. In 42 BC, the new Roman Senate deified Julius Caesar and decided that Julius Caesar was the true God. There are stories of comets in the air flying through, and and the people believe that the comets flying by were Julius Caesar's soul being taken up into heaven, that he was the true God. And then because Augustus was the, or Octavius at the time, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who is now a god, he becomes the son of God. 
See how that works? And then they fit it right into his title. And then every Caesar after that became the son of God. And that was the whole idea is they started to deify these Roman leaders. Over the next few years, there had been a period of Roman civil wars that had been fought. And the last one, Octavius defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra. It's another good story. Someone should write about. You should do a movie. After the war ended, Octavius brought what was called peace to Rome. He ended about 100 years of civil wars that had been going on. This peace would be called in history the Pax Romana or even sometimes the Pax Augusta because he was the one who led it. It was a period that lasted about 200 years. Now, it wasn't exactly peace the way you might think. It was peace the same way that Hitler brought peace to Europe in the 1930s. It was a peace based by military strength and oppression. And he started to expand the Roman Empire. And over the next several years, Augustus started to change the constitution in, in Rome, got a brand new Senate. They made Julius Caesar the God. They made him the son of God, and they made him emperor. And he becomes the first Roman emperor. And then they actually gave him the name Augustus. He was Octavius all the way until right before Jesus was born. Augustus was a name given to him by the Senate. It meant sacred or revered. And his name and title established him as something very interesting. He was not just emperor, but he was a priest also in what would be called the Roman imperial cult. And if you look it up, the Roman imperial cult was the idea that you had to worship the Roman Caesars, the Roman leaders, as God. And you could have other gods if you wanted to. That was okay in most of the Roman Empire, but your first god had to be the Caesar. And in the scriptures or in other writings, when you see something called a tribute tax, the tribute tax was something that Augustus instituted that was new, and it was something where you had to pay like a religious tax to Caesar, pledging what you do when you're paying that tax is you're pledging your, your worship to Caesar in this imperial cult. It's a really interesting tax. The problem for that for a lot of people is they had to struggle with their own religion the way they got the message out that Caesar was God, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have CNN or any other branch out there of news. The way you got the message out if you were Romans in that culture is you put it on your coins. If you ever get a chance to look at Roman coins, it'll have the head of the Caesar on it and it'll have their name and it'll say, uh, Phileas Divine or Divine Son of God. And that's how they got their message out that, hey, this person, this is the Caesar, he's also the Son of God and you need to worship him. And later on when Tiberius Caesar who the coin says, son of the divine Augustus, when he was, when he was Caesar, Jesus was asked, what are you going to do about this trib tribute tax? Should we pay it? Should we pay it or not? And Jesus says, pull out a coin. Who's on it? And on the coin is Tiberius, and it says, Tiberius, son of God. And Jesus, the true son of God, says, render under Caesar, but give to God what is God's. And all throughout the book of Luke, actually, there's all kinds of sort of political references like that to what really is going on in the culture and how this works. And Jesus, when he responds, is very well aware of Roman culture, very well aware of the religious culture and how they're trying to interact and how it doesn't really work very well. And Jesus gives you a whole nother way. Don't worry about the tax, pay it. It's just a waste of time. Love the real God. Augustus had a problem, back to Augustus. The problem is, is he knows he's not the son of God, really, and he knows he's going to die, so he needs an heir. So he adopts Tiberius, who was the son of his wife from a previous marriage. Tiberius becomes Tiberius Caesar Augustus. Tiberius is the Caesar in Jesus' day as an adult. An interesting thing about Tiberius is that he, he appointed Pontius Pilate as the governor of Judea. Tiberius was the Caesar that the crowd was referring to at Jesus' trial when they chanted, we have no king but Caesar. They were talking about Tiberius. 
Interestingly, Tiberius would eventually have Pilate arrested and brought back to Rome to be tried. Rumor is that, that, that Pilate felt bad about what he did, maybe even converted. It's just a legend. We don't know. But he got in a lot of trouble. And incidentally, from a historical standpoint, historians sometimes will take a look at the Scripture and these people that are here and say they didn't exist. And until about 1961, there was a whole lot of historians who believed and archaeologists that Pontius Pilate was a made-up figure, just a made-up figure for the Gospels until they were digging around and they found a stone. It's now called the, uh, the Pilate Stone. You can see it in the Israel Museum. And on it, it says Pontius Pilate, who was, it was dedicated by Pontius Pilate, uh, who was uh, appointed by Tiberius Caesar. And now we have all kinds of information about Pontius Pilate. Real guy. Real guy Tiberius Caesar. Real guy Pontius Pilate. Real guy... Julius Caesar, real guy, King Herod, all of these people existed at the right time as a part of the story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. What's known from history is that this was the first Roman census of the entire population. And it was being taken because Augustus wanted to tax individuals, not just communities. The interesting thing about this is that to register, you had to go to your hometown. And what happened here in real life is if you are Joseph and Mary, you have to go to Bethlehem, your Joseph's hometown to register. And unbeknownst to Caesar, but known to God, this was fulfilling prophecy. And Joseph came out of Nazareth to go to Bethlehem and brought Mary with him. And Jesus would be born there. Verse 4, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Joseph and Mary would give birth to a son, a birth that prophets hundreds of years before predicted would happen in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. See, Mary and Joseph's child was not just any son. It was a divine son of God. Well, Augustus is a very a person of history of little importance. This son of God is the person of history of greatest importance, Jesus Christ. And while today nobody celebrates the birthday of Caesar Augustus, the whole world is recognizing whether they like it or not Christmas. Almost every nation on earth is doing something for Christmas, has Christmas traditions. Almost every nation on earth is debating whether or not the story is true because Jesus is the most important person in all of history. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And his birth is recorded here because those people understood from Micah how important his birth was, that he was royalty, that we should remember these stories, that we should tell them. And they did. You see, when you put Luke into its historical context, you start to see some amazing things. And in particular, you see a contrast that is going on that Luke is making between somebody who claims the title son of God, who everybody knows is just a man, and somebody and who everybody knew was just a man, who would act, and then somebody else who the people who were faithful knew was more than just a man, who was God, who was actually the son of the living God and becomes the true savior of the world. 
And throughout the Gospel of Luke, you start to see these comparisons to the fake Son of God and the real Son of God. And today when we realize, when we read this story, we realize something. The story is not actually about Caesar, as a historian might think it would be, but it's all about Jesus. And Caesar doesn't really matter. He's just a footnote, just a marker in time for when Jesus came. And every time we speak the name Caesar Augustus, almost everywhere in the world today, except for a class, if you're taking a class about it, you're only saying it because Luke wrote it down and it's part of the story of Jesus. See, history revolves around Jesus. It points to Jesus. We count our dates after Jesus. They got their years off by a few years, okay? They weren't really that good at it. But the intention was, we're gonna start counting the years backwards from before Jesus' birth and forward after Jesus' birth. It used to be called before Christ, B.C. It's not politically correct to say that, but all of the documents written forever say before Christ because that's what it means. And A.D. is in the year of our Lord, Anno Domini. See, all of history points us back to Jesus Christ. Even the calendar on your phone is referencing him subtly. This is an incredible thing. And in time, what's interesting is we rarely name our children after Caesars. Do you know that? Hardly ever. I have a really good friend whose dog is named Tiberius. It's a great name for a dog. I thought about making my son James' middle name Tiberius because then he would be James Tiberius like Kirk because I'm a nerd. (laughs) Christy didn't go for it. His middle name is Theodore, so he's still James T. (laughs) Nobody names their kids Nero. You know what's really interesting, though? What do we name our kids all around the world in different languages? James and John and Peter and Mary and Joseph and Ruth and Elizabeth and Zechariah. We name our kids after these people who are nothing, except that actually they're the most important characters of the story. And they're people just like you and me who are elevated up really high and their names are carried on throughout history in every culture. Why? Because actually they matter a great deal. In our story as it continues, Jesus would bear the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the angels who would announce his birth, they don't go to the Caesars 1,500 miles away. They don't go to the ruling class of Herod who's just down the street. Instead, they go to lowly shepherds And the shepherds aren't the footnotes in the story. We put the shepherds in our manger scenes. They're a little too clean, but they were there. And they're important enough to hear the news first from the heavenly host. Who are the footnotes in our world today for what God is doing? Are we worried a lot about people named Trump or Biden or Putin or insert name here of whoever people are screaming about on Twitter or screaming on Twitter. No. You know, in the end of history, they're the same as everybody else. Jesus died for them like everybody else because they're a sinner. But the people who are important are God's people, which means you and me. If you've been adopted in the family of God by faith, we become sons and daughters and heirs to all that God has been given to us forever. We become adopted into his family And you are not a footnote. You are part of the story. And you are precious to God who loves you. 
And your value is not in your title. Your value is not in your wealth. Your value is not in your education or your accomplishments. Your value is that you are made in the image of God, the living God, the true God, not some guy who thinks he's God, not some guy who got a piece of paper that said, hey, now you're God, but the living God who created the universe and created you. And your value is that you are made in the image of God and adopted into his family, through, into his family if you've put your faith in him. And the value of everybody you know is very high because they're made in the image of God. See, in the Christmas story, it's about how God loved us enough to become one of us and be here, to provide a way of salvation, and to give us a mission and a purpose and a calling and a new family. And ultimately, if you read the book of Revelation, you get a new name. You get a new title. The book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are God's handiwork. You know what's really interesting about this story is that in the town of Ephesus, it was the central hub of, of goddess worship, the, wor- the goddess Diana, okay, Roman god Diana. And there were temples of Diana and all this stuff. And one of the things that the people did there was they made artistry and statues of Diana, and they sold it to people when they'd come to town for the festivals. You'd get a Diana bobblehead, and they'd make it, and they'd hand it out. And what the people were doing, the artists were making images of the goddess Diana and handing it out. And what's interesting, the play on words that Paul does here is that to those people, he says, you are the handiwork of God. God, as the artist, is making you. Instead of you making some phony God, God is making you. And you're that important. Do you believe that about yourself? So many of us doubt ourselves, Or we think God can never love me. Or I've done so many things wrong or I've rejected him for so long, I'm not important. All throughout scripture, you find people just like you and me who aren't any different. And who have sinned and done far worse things than most of us. And yet we are adopted into the family of God by faith, for it is by grace that we have been saved, through faith, and not from ourselves. And it's the gift of God. It's real Christmas, the gift of God of his son, the gift of God of his grace, his unmerited favor that he had on us. It's a gift. And as children of God, we've been given a mission to carry on his mission of salvation. And we carry the message of Christmas, that God would send his only son, The Gospel of John, it doesn't have a Christmas story per se, but it's very much a Christmas story about the birth of Jesus. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a Christmas verse. And the birth of this baby at Christmas is the joy of Christmas. It's something that happened in history. It's something that is real, not just sort of a religious fantasy or something to create a holiday, it's real. You know, today you can go to Augustus's grave. He built himself a nice fancy mausoleum. Before he died, he put a bunch of his relatives in it, then they put him in it, and then a lot of the other Caesars are in there. Tiberius is in there, a whole bunch of their family, they're in there. 
They're in that grave. For a long time, you really couldn't go see it. You can kind of see it from afar. But after the fall of Rome, the grave went bad. I mean, it turned into a latrine, literally. That's what it was. And then over the years, somebody put a 7-Eleven on top of it. And then there was other stuff going on there. Recently, they've decided to remodel it and make it a tourist attraction. So pretty soon, you'll be able to actually go in and check out the Caesar's tomb. It's really amazing. And if you're wondering where Augustus is today, he's in the grave. One of the things that the Christians would say in the early days was this, Caesar is dead, but Jesus lives. You can go find the grave of almost every religious leader or political leader that we have record of. And if you can't find their grave because they were buried at sea or maybe their ashes were spread somewhere, you can find the story of what happened to their ashes or what happened to their body parts. There's different things for different people. You can find all of it. You can go on Wikipedia and find it all. You can make a world travel and visit everybody's grave. You know what happens, though, if you look for Jesus' grave? There's a problem. There's a place that's historical as grave. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is on top of it, right? And you can go there and visit it. The problem is, is that down the street is somebody else saying, no, no, this is actually the tomb. And it looks a little bit better. It just doesn't have all the stuff on it. And there's another guy saying, no, no, I think the tomb is over here. And you know why we don't know where Jesus' grave really is? Because he wasn't in it. Nobody knows where Jesus' grave is because there was no body in it. It's an incredible thing in history that we have no idea that a person of such importance, where we know the details of his birth, that we don't have a grave marker for where he was buried, that we have no idea what happened. You would think, usually we have that. We have that for everybody else. We even know where Augustus is buried. But nobody knows where Jesus is buried because he came out. And even if one of those spots is the right place, maybe the tradition got it right in that church of the Holy Sepulchre, maybe that is the spot. There's no body in there because he came up. That's why it is celebrated. Nobody today thinks that Augustus is the Son of God, but millions and millions of people worship Jesus because he is. See, history shows us that hundreds of people saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion. Hundreds of people at the same time. Not like somebody who sees Elvis at a gas station and writes the story up. 500 people at the same time sees Jesus alive. That doesn't happen. And a bunch of people who didn't matter, these disciples, they go out and they change the world. Their story is so compelling that actually the Roman Empire, who persecutes Christians for so long, eventually decides to become Christian, which was kind of a problem, actually. But these people's story was so compelling that even you and I are here today because of it. You see, that's because in the kingdom of God, you matter. In the kingdom of God, the living God, you have a gift of salvation through Jesus Christ that's free, and you have a gift of the Holy Spirit that is God with you that can lead your life, that keeps you on mission. And you are forgiven, you are reconciled to God, you know the Prince of Peace, and it's not some temporary Roman peace, but it's a peace that transcends all understanding. The thing to keep in mind here is this, we live in a world of so much skepticism, and skepticism of the church, of traditions, of institutions, and it's getting worse and worse, and a lot of that is deserved. But history, actual history, points us to Jesus Christ. Read the Christmas story. My kids came home with us 
you know, Christmas story Bible trivia, and it was pretty detailed. I missed two of them, and they laughed at me. You know, what does the innkeeper say in the story? Nothing. The other thing to keep in mind is this, that Caesar is dead, but Jesus lives. So trust in him. It's really hard to believe in somebody's way when they're in the grave the same like all the rest of us. But a guy who comes up out of the grave, I'm going to follow that guy. He's worth trusting. This is the Jesus we celebrate at Christmas. And lastly, realize that we are important enough to, to God that he actually trusts us to do his will. It's an amazing thing that he called us to make disciples. That he didn't just say, sit down and watch me. He invited us into the process. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And I'm with you even until the end of the age, Jesus says. That's the command, to invite us into the plan. It's an interesting thing about Jesus' plan for the church. It's Christmas time and Christmas Eve. A lot of people are going to go to church, right? This week, more people in America will go to church than almost any other weekend, maybe even more than Easter. A lot of people think Christmas Eve is bigger than Easter now as far as people going to church in our culture. But Jesus did not call us to invite people to come into our buildings. He called us to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel to them. This is what we are called to do, and this is great. This is great news. And God has put people in your life, people maybe who are coming to visit. Maybe you're here today and you're just here today because you're visiting for Christmas and they dragged you to church. I get it. But maybe you're here today because you needed to hear that Jesus is the real deal, that a lot of the things out there that are fantasy that you know are fantasy, we know are fantasy and the Bible says are fantasy too. Maybe you need to look into the real story of why the entire world is debating today whether or not Jesus is the King of Kings and we can't shake it. And every year it is rigged and we have it all over the place. It's in the songs, it's in the songs they play at Walmart, it's in the songs they play everywhere you go. Disneyland, of all places, has a candlelight processional. Any of you ever go to that? We used to go all the time until Disneyland became completely unaffordable, but these choirs march down Main Street. They lower all the lights, they're all carrying these candles, and they sing Joy to the World. And then they all, if you've been to Disneyland, they all get up on the train station and they sing only Christian songs, and then a famous person stands up and reads the passage we just read, all of Luke 2. The famous person often doesn't believe in Jesus, and they try to give some aside. Sometimes they do, and they're so excited about it. Christy and I were sitting there one time going, I can't believe they're preaching the gospel at Disneyland. We spent the whole time in prayer. You know how powerful it is, this story? that it breaks down all the barriers because of the hope of Jesus Christ that maybe there really is a savior that every human and every culture has been looking for, that the bags of guilt that we carry around, the spiritual angst that we're trying to resolve, it's all been resolved on the cross by this little baby that was born 2,000 years ago who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So this Christmas, let people you know know that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ and that this is real, that the forgiveness that they are seeking and hoping for it is real, that the biblical narrative is real, that the cross is real, the resurrection is real, and salvation by faith is real, and it comes from the Prince of Peace, who is also a wonderful counselor and everlasting Father and mighty God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you pray with me?
God, we thank you for your word and for sending us Jesus. And I pray that this Christmas story, with all the stuff going on and all the distractions, that we would be able to take some time and focus on the good news, the good news that those angels heralded, the good news that has been preached for 2,000 years, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The Caesar is not Lord, he's dead. But Jesus is Lord and he's alive. I pray that we would understand today that by faith, all who put their faith in him and trust in him, even though one day we might follow him into a grave, we will also follow him right out and into everlasting life. I pray that we would all know that this morning and that this Christmas we would celebrate who you are and rejoice in the joy of Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.